My dad died. I miss my friends because of- I don't know how to tell my friends that. I want to help my friends. I don't know how. The pandemic has left me feeling very lonely. How can I best support students in my classroom? My uncle abused me. The morning meeting is meant to be a place to let you know that you are not alone. We can get through this together. So join us. Listen, learn, share your stories. This is the morning meeting. Today's guest on the morning meeting is Sonia Charday. She's a Chicago native who currently resides in Duluth, Georgia with her 13-year-old son, Katim. She's the founder of the Soul Collective established in March of 2020. The Soul Collective is a lifestyle brand that helps women manage and heal from trauma by reframing negative beliefs about themselves and ceasing behaviors that block their self-love and their confidence. She offers group and individual coaching and products that encourage self-love, self-care, and self-reflection. In her published guided journal, Fuck Those Voices, a journal and love letter for women who live with trauma, she shares how trauma has shaped her relationships and worldviews and uses affirmations and reflection prompts to help women break down their limiting beliefs in order to become more confident on their journey towards healing. We talk about some of the trauma that she's experienced and how she has learned to cope as well as thrive um, in the aftermath. If you're interested in learning more about Sonia Charday, check out thesoulcollective.org. So Sonia Charday, thank you so much for coming on the Morning Meeting Podcast. I am very excited to have you today. I'm very excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Of course, we've had um, one conversation before, and I found you so interesting. And I love that you're so willing that way about me. Very interesting. (laughs) Um, I love that you're so willing to be so vulnerable and, um, you know, really just share your story so bluntly. And um, I'm excited to get into it with you today. Thank you. So um, you have a lot of stories. Um, a very big, exciting, um, life, but we were going to focus today really on your, um, on your college experience and what kind of shaped what it was like for you to be in college and some of the trauma that you had experienced as a younger person and how that sort of manifested as a college student. So why don't you just introduce yourself a little bit and share a little bit about your history. Sonia Charday, and um, I am in the Atlanta area. I am a social worker by trade and education, but I'm currently working as an entrepreneur. I have a lifestyle brand called The Soul Collective, and I work with women who have been through trauma, and I'm doing that through group coaching, one-on-one coaching, and I'm also working on getting my yoga certification so that I can continue to help more people work through their trauma through yoga and mindfulness and meditation. And I'm a published author, blah, blah, blah. All that stuff will be in the episode description, I'm sure. Why don't you tell us a little bit about, you know, when we talked the last time, you spoke about your college experience and how challenging that was at some points. Um, And there was a few reasons, I think, as a Black person going to a predominantly white school, you talked about that. And also about the trauma that you experienced as a child yeah. and how that sort of affected the relationships that you had in college. So do you want to just yeah. describe a little bit about your childhood so people understand where you're yeah. coming from? 
Absolutely. Um, so I've had a childhood that was just full of lots of fun trauma. It was great. Um, so my mother, so before my mom married my stepfather, um, I actually had a really great childhood from what I remember. Um, you know, she was a really attentive mom and, you know, she worked a lot. She had me when she was 18. So she was a young mother. She worked a lot, but she always, you know, did her best to provide for me. And I remember from what I remember, I always had everything I needed. Um, on Sundays we would like cook, um, she would buy steak, we cook steak and I'd help her cut the carrots and potatoes and we dance in the kitchen listening to Prince. And like, it was a really great childhood. We'd go to museums and bike rides and all type of shit. Um, but then my stepfather came to the picture and he was um, very charming, very handsome, but he was a heroin addict. And so he was using before he met, my, before they started dating, but we didn't know. Well, obviously I didn't know I was five, but she didn't know. Um, and so he was an addict the entire time they were together for 20 years. So during my childhood, um, there was a lot of abuse that happened both towards me, um, towards my mom, um, even when she was pregnant with my younger siblings, he was super abusive. I don't know if people that are listening know how addiction goes, but you tend to like smoke up all your money. So there were times when, you know, we didn't have heat or we didn't have gas, we didn't have running water and we were in Chicago. So it was cold as fuck in the wintertime. Um, so, you know, that experience as a child caused a few things It caused me to have to grow up really fast because my mom had kids after, you know, that were younger than me. And so I had to really help out a lot. And it also, um, really shaped how I viewed the world and relationships and interactions with other human beings, like, especially with men in particular, I, I was raped when I was 13. Um, that was my first sexual encounter. And then I was raped again in college when I was 18. Um, but the first time I was raped, it was weird. Well, of course it was weird both. I mean, it's not like a fun experience, but, um, but that experience was confusing for me because I always had really low confidence as a teenager and a young adult. And, um, you know, people would make fun of me and call me names and tell me, tell me I was ugly. So I believed those things because nobody else was telling me that I wasn't those things. And so I was very confused when I got raped the first time. It's like, well, I thought I was ugly. So why would this person want to forcibly have sex with me? And so that caused me to kind of really explore sexuality in a way that was really focused on like taking power back and feeling attractive towards people because I knew in my mind that I wasn't attractive. So I wanted to like see if maybe allowing people to have sex with me would make me more attractive. And I mean, of course it did because right. what young person, man is going to turn down sex with a willing teenage girl? You know, most won't. So, um, so I became, so you were using sex as a way to say like, look, I am pretty. These people want to have sex with me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I didn't really understand the psychology behind it at that point, <laughs> but now like, you know, now I do, I see why I was doing that. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's kind of how I use sex and how I navigated through the world. Because I also knew from my interactions with my stepdad that men lie, they can't be trusted. Um, and, you know, there, you can't really depend on anybody's word, you know, like my mom, we had, I had a great childhood and then everything got fucked up because she got with this guy who completely came in and changed the dynamic of our relationship for decades and just changed how I felt in my home. Um, you know, things got so bad at the time with the abuse and everything and the controlling way that my stepfather was that I would literally like vomit when I was walking home from school. Like I, that's how bad it was. Um, and so, so it just changed. Um, it, it taught me that nothing good is going to last. And that you really can't trust, you really can't trust anybody or anything to be what you think it might be. And so that's kind of how I moved about in the world with relationships with men for a long time, um, especially in college, because college, you know, you have this newfound freedom and you're exploring your sexuality 
in general, even if you hadn't had traumatic sexual experiences or traumatic childhood experiences, you're exploring sexuality because nobody's watching you, nobody's giving you any rules, right? There, the only rules there are no rules in college. Mm -hmm. And so I had a lot of sex with people, obviously people, not like unpeople. Um, and so, so yeah, I just um I use that as a way to kind of like feel like I was in control of things. There are so many things that I wasn't in control of. Um, as a teenager and as like a 21 year old or a 22 year old and but sex was a thing that I could control like I could control who I had sex with and you know I could control if the person really liked me to like decide not to like them and just totally avoid them which is what I tended to do a lot um, and so that's kind of how those relationships shaped my relationships in college. Yeah oftentimes when we hear about young people having a lot of sex with random you know or multiple partners, right? We think they're out of control, right? That's like what these, the adults in their life are probably yeah. thinking about them. They're out of control, but really you were using it as a way to be in control. Yeah. I mean, I feel like it was the one thing that I could control. Like I couldn't control the fact that I was at this white ass school with all these white kids that I couldn't relate to. Um, and I couldn't control the fact that like all the Brown kids at my school, like came from a lot of money. So they weren't, I was always working two jobs at Emory. Um, and so as a result, my grades weren't that good. And I got, always had straight A's. Like I had a 4.7 GPA in high school. So I was used to being what I thought was very smart. Being at Emory made me feel very stupid um, mm -hmm. because I felt like I was barely passing and barely getting C's. And I, I didn't like that feeling because again, I was not very attractive, but I was smart, right? So at least I had that going for me. And now I'm in a place where I'm not smart anymore because I'm struggling to keep up with and nobody sat me down and told me you know Emory's a hard school like it's normal to struggle nobody told me that shit because nobody I knew in my family or in my close circle had gone to college um everybody barely even finished high school so I just was in a weird place where I didn't know like I didn't understand my surroundings I hated I hated being at Emory um I, I mean, I had some fun because it was college, but I really hated it. I didn't party like most college students did because I didn't have the luxury of doing that. I had to like be at work the next morning at seven o'clock. So um, it was just a weird experience for me. But yeah, sex and relationships with men were the one thing that I could control. And I often felt kind of powerful when like somebody would like kind of start liking me too much. I'm like, whoa, chill the fuck out. I'm just going to not answer this guy's phone call. I, I'm, I know it's him calling me on my dorm room phone. So I'm just not going to answer it. And that kind of made me feel like I was powerful and like, you know, strong mm -hmm. in some sort of weird twisted way. Mm -hmm. So before you, you know, got your own therapy and got your degree in social work and, you know, educated yourself, what were you thinking at that point? Were you just thinking like, I'm having fun and that's just where I'm at in my life. Or were you like, what were you thinking about relationships with other people who, you know, sort of triggered that trauma response in you? Um, you know what? I'm not sure if I know what I was thinking. I do know, I do realize um, now that I had a pattern of the men that I actually did like not push away were men that um, were very unavailable. So okay. like my first boyfriend in college um, was a guy named Jeremy Moore. And um, he's passed on. I, and, and of course, like, you know, I was really, really into him and we fell in love, blah, blah, blah. And then he moved away to Savannah State, which was about five hours from Emory. Um, and any old, per anybody else, like we had just started dating. Anybody's been like, okay, this is not going to work out, like peace. And I was like, oh no, we're going to make it work, which was stupid. Like those type of things never work, right? Um, and so he was clearly unavailable, like 
by, you know, method of elimination because he was five hours away. And um, then the next person after that was an artist who was unavailable from the beginning. But I was like, oh, this is going to work because I just have to be very understanding and like, you know, understanding that he's so busy. And then I got into a long distance relationship that was like seven years where that person lived in a whole other state from me. So that was clearly unavailable. Um, we're still together to this day. He's an amazing person and has changed a lot of the ways that I view men and relationships and life in general. So that's been a big blessing. But I always chose men that are unavailable. Um, so I think that for me, I I never really thought that I should have something that was supportive or loving or accessible in relationships. I always thought that, that was for other people that weren't me. And that's just, you know, stems from this whole childhood of of hearing that and really experiencing a lot of experiencing a lot of situations where you felt like you were unworthy yeah I mean I think I think of like in the way that my stepfather would get mad and punish us like I remember we had this beautiful Siberian husky spice um and uh she you know she had to be walked because she was a dog and dogs had to be walked and so on the weekends I was always involved in a lot of extracurricular stuff at school because I didn't want to be home so on the weekends and the on Saturday mornings I wouldn't have anywhere to go and so I'd be home um but he would come my room and wake me up at five o'clock in the morning to make me walk the dog even though the dog was like sleeping but he would make me walk the dog and be like if you're gonna if you're gonna sleep in past five o'clock you gotta walk the dog first and then go back to sleep which is fucking stupid like who fucking who fucking does that so adults don't even do that nobody's that fucking responsible so um so like shit like that and let's say I forgot to walk the dog right um it would be this huge like he loved to give like these long dumbass monologues where he I think he just likes to fucking hear himself talk where he would just talk about like how stupid I was or how incompetent I was or how I was gonna grow up grow up to be like grow up and I wouldn't be shit just like my dad which is not true my dad is very responsible um, you know, um, he would say all these things and, you know, it would, while he was talking for like literally two hours, he'd make us like stand on one foot or be on our knees for the whole time or whatever. Um, so just these weird draconian punishments. Um, and I think for him, I think he really was a person that saw himself spiraling out of control with his addiction. And so maybe abusing us was the way that he felt powerful, just in the same way that me, having sex with men or kind of like avoiding them when things got serious was the way that I felt powerful but it definitely it it definitely you know shaped just my ability to trust people and trust in relationships and then um even as an adult now I find that I over apologize and I'm always always overthinking everything I say and do like oh I said that thing maybe I was being too harsh maybe I said that in the wrong way and I'm always calling a friend like hey I don't know if this I don't know if this is like me or if I really did say this thing and it was mean to you but if it was I'm really really sorry and I was like nobody would have ever thought that please stop calling me and telling me these things um but I I tend to always overthink because I um I think sometimes I still have that ingrained in my head that you know nothing you do is going to be good enough or you're always going to fuck up or you're always you know fucking everything up Mm -hmm. um so that's still something that's present that I'm still working through you said that you're in a relationship now that you've been in for a long time so you've somehow been able to manage to uh, fight that urge to push people away when they actually do care about you how did that happen um I I have asked fight the urge um so I'm much better at it I would say in the last year but so the, the the relationship has been long distance except for the past year so I actually relocated back to Georgia not for the relationship I was planning to move because I wanted a fresh start anyway and it made sense Georgia made sense because I had lived here for 10 years 
for school. My son was born here. My son's father lives here. And we had, um, you know, I had friends here and some family here. So it was a good place to restart as a single mother, as opposed to moving somewhere where I knew nobody else. Um, but I, um, so the, for the first, maybe like six years of the relationship, I was all very ready to break up anytime there was an argument um, or not even an argument because he doesn't argue. He's very chill and laid back. I'm not, I mean, whatever the opposite of that is, that's what I am. <laughs> um, so he, you know, let's say we had a disagreement or we didn't agree on the same topic. To me, that was a cue that like, that means it's not going to work out. So we should just break up. And so I always would be like, okay, we should just break up. And he'd be like, no, we had a disagreement. We should just talk about it. And I was always ready to break up all the time. That was always my go-to, um, my go-to reaction. And uh, I found out through my father that my father has the same reaction. So I guess I inherited that from him. And we were talking about it, me and my dad. And he said that it's because his mom died. She was an alcoholic and a drug addict. And his mom died when he was very young. He was 12 and he was like sitting next to her when she died. Um, and so he knew that, you know, nobody stays around. Um, and everybody, everybody leaves you. So it's better to just fuck things up and leave before they can leave you and hurt and hurt you. Mm -hmm. And I said, wow, thanks so much for passing along that twisted ass fucking DNA, because that's the same exact reasoning that I have, you know, I'm going to fuck it up at some point and you're going to hurt me. So I might as well just end this before that happens. So we can just both go on about our way. Um, and so I realized that that was me like constantly living in fear and not believing that I deserved a healthy relationship and also not loving myself in a way where I believe that I had the capacity to like work through things in a healthy manner and sit with the feelings, sit with the emotions. Um, Cause for so long, really like up until everything, everything good in my life, well, not everything good, but everything, all the healthy changes have happened like in the past two years. Um, so, you know, for the longest time up until like a year ago, I really just blocked out any emotional feeling for anything. Like people would die or something really bad would happen and I would feel nothing at all. I would not cry. Um, I wouldn't be sad. Like I would just feel blank. I remember one time talking to a therapist. She was like, how do you feel about that? I was like, I feel blank. And she was like, hmm, okay. Um, so now um, with the relationship, now I, you know, I'm working on communicating in a much healthier way, you know, asking for the things that I want, you know, and, and learning how to speak up when things bother me in a way that's not combative has been really hard for me, but I've been getting much better at that lately, mainly because I write stuff down first before I bring it to him. And I'm like, oh, you sound fucking crazy. Don't say that shit. Um, so like, I'll look at it like hours later. I'm like, why the fuck would you yeah. say that? That's so stupid. And I like cross it off the list. I'm like, do not say that. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of how I've, how I've been able to work through that and come to those changes with communication and relationships. And where did you get that idea? You mentioned a therapist. I don't know if you're therapy had been something that was really helpful to you or not? Yes. So I did start seeing a therapist in college, which was super unhelpful. Um, at that time, it was super unhelpful because I just feel like it wasn't a good fit. Um, you know, a therapist is like an apartment. You have to like go through so many different apartments so you find the right one, right? And I didn't realize that at first. So I just thought that therapy just sucked in general. Um, and I didn't go back for a while. And I went back when I was in grad school because I had a traumatic incident with a artist boyfriend of mine who I um I was um pregnant and had an abortion and it all just happened really quickly and I was like really really depressed about it and so I went to the therapist and that was a little bit helpful but then I wasn't able to see her once I graduated grad school because it wasn't covered so then um finally about three four years ago I started seeing therapists again because I had health insurance for the first time in like seven years and my first therapist was not that great um, the second one was worse than the first one, but the third one 
was a perfect fit for me. Um, and I still see her to this day. I mean, I don't see her now because I don't have health insurance. So I see her very sparingly, but um, I'm still in touch with her. And that was very helpful because she was the first type of therapist who talked the way I talk. Like this how I'm talking now, that's how, he, how we would talk. Mm-hmm. and I could curse in her office and she wouldn't like look at me like I was crazy she wasn't like writing down all these fucking notes like what the fuck are you guys writing what the fuck are you saying so Therapists should not be writing in the middle of a session yeah they would just be like like can you like just make a mental fucking note and write it when I leave look at me I am the focus here mm-hmm. um so you know we would we would just it just felt like I was talking to a friend who happened to have these clinical skills and so for me that was a good fit for me that type mm-hmm. of therapy um mm-hmm because it felt like I could really be myself. And I guess it made me feel like I could show all the parts of me that were really ugly and really broken and just really fucked up. And I wouldn't be judged. You know, when somebody's sitting down writing shit and you're talking about like how you're not, you, know, you don't allow yourself to feel emotions or how you just did all these things or blocked out all this stuff. Um, it, it, it doesn't really, it's not a good feeling. And I also didn't, I liked that this therapist, she didn't like say shit like, oh, that must be so hard. Oh, I'm so amazed that you accomplish all the shit you amazed. Well, bitch, because I'm fucking amazing. Like, can we work on me not being so fucking toxic? You know, like, it's like, I don't need you to tell me that. Let's c- come up with a plan so I can be healthier. I don't need yeah. the affirmations and all that shit. I, I, I'm good on that. Um, so the other therapist didn't do that. You know, mm-hmm. she didn't kind of send me in that way. Um, so that was, that was super helpful for me. Mm-hmm. Also, I think you bring up another really good point. Like, her language she matched your language mm-hmm. like she talked like you and that makes people feel comfortable like when you feel like you are you know they see you so I think that's really important when people are looking for a therapist to find a good fit and sometimes it is like it's language it's body language it's all of that even down to like the office like the office was in this really cute neighborhood that I loved and um there was a coffee shop that I love that was like four blocks away. And I would make it like a therapy ritual. Like I would go to therapy and then I walked to the coffee shop and the coffee shop, they would like all like turn around and be like, hi, Sonia Chardet, welcome back. And they had these fucking blueberry scones with black pepper that were made. It was this old ass Jewish man that would come. I don't know why the fuck he was always there on Saturday, but he was always there every fucking time I went there. He was like 90 years old. He would come give me a hug and he was like, oh, Sonia, how are you? And it was just like so nice. Um, but like the building was beautiful. Even the stairwell like had these big windows and these beautiful brick walls. And it was, it was just a really calming, rejuvenating, therapeutic, for lack of a better word, environment. So what else has been helpful to you as far as healing from all of the trauma that you've been through? Um, so my, my relationship with my mom has changed a lot. So when I was in college, um, I got a scholarship from, um, I think it was Alpha Kappa Alpha. And they were supposed to mail the check to my college address, but they mailed it to my mom's house and my stepfather ended up cashing the check and using it, which fucked me up with college. But um, so I was really mad at my mom because I felt like she should have stood up for me in a lot of ways and, you know, been there for me in a way when I'm I'm all these miles away from home, I'm trying to do some shit that nobody in our family has ever done. You know, um, you haven't been helpful at all, like at least protect me in that sense. And she didn't do that. And so we really didn't talk for a long time because she was in denial about the things that happened. Like I would try and talk with her about like horrible things that had happened when I would have repressed memories resurface or when I would be feeling really sad. And she'd just be like, I can't talk about the shit right now. It's stressing me out. And she just hang up the phone. So I was like, okay, cool. Fuck you. I'm not going to talk to you. And so I didn't talk to her really at all um, until I got pregnant with my son. And um, 
she, when I was in labor, she came to Atlanta when I was in labor. Um, she came and I thought at that point that we were going to improve our relationship. Um, but then we didn't because I found out that she was saying like really hurtful things about me being a single parent, being an unwed mother, which is funny because she was fucking 18. I was 21. I had graduated from fucking Emory. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was out here doing everything on my own. So it's like, who the fuck are you to say this? Like, fuck you. You should be fucking proud of me. Like I'm doing way better than you were at this age. And I didn't have any of your fucking help. So, um, so I, and I would, I would say shit like that. Like, no, like you don't, don't talk about me like that. You should be fucking proud. You know, what the fuck is wrong with you? And, um, I'm not the kind of person that holds things back. You know, I don't know if this is a surprise to listeners, (laughs) but, um, so my mom ended up, she, you know, she left my stepfather when my son was about three and so they went through a divorce and they her and my siblings were actually homeless for quite a bit of time and then she started in the past five years doing her own healing finally um so she started going to therapy started like being able to talk about things that happened and for me that showed me that she might be ready for us to have a relationship and so I would just start talking about things and she would be like, wow, I never knew that that happened. And, um, you know, like my mom has um, some ribs that are dislocated from my stepfather throwing her down the stairs when she was nine months pregnant. And they kind of pop out the socket every now and then. And so um, sometimes we'll be together and she'll bend a certain way and it'll pop out and I'll have to pop the rib back in for her. But which really sounds really twisted now that I'm saying this. But um, but the, the fact that she was able to talk to me about, you know, the old her would have just dealt with the pain and figured it out, her, pushed it in herself, right? Right. So we're, we're at a point now where we're able to just really talk about shit in a way that's just like, these are things that happen and nobody's mm-hmm. crying and nobody's like pressed, but it's like a part of our life. It's always going to be a part of a, something that shapes every single thing about us and how we view the world and anybody yeah. that we interact with going forward. And so it's important to be able to talk about these things like they're not taboo. So I think that was a huge part of my healing was many the relationship with my mom. And now we're actually really close. And, you know, my mom's not perfect, but I'm able to now accept her for who she is. And then as a result, have realistic expectations for what she can and can't do and what mm-hmm. we can and can't be as mother and daughter. And that's been very healing for me. Um, so that's been a huge thing that's been healing. And also just realizing that um, through therapy that I have a lot of flaws too. And I, I tended to blame bad things that happened or bad relationships on the other person like oh they were an asshole or they were un, un, un um dishonest or whatever but a lot of times it was me like not communicating and not asking for what I want or settling um and so I've had to do a lot of inner child work to figure out where those feelings come from and what I can do to change them so that's been very um so that's been a very Working through inner child trauma has been a thing that's been very eye-opening for me and learning how things in our childhood really do shape everything that we do as an adult. And I think that's, you know, the awareness uh, that therapy can provide. So knowing that that's where it's coming from helps you to be able to acknowledge it and work, you know, through it. Yeah, it's, it's been huge for me. You're lucky that you've been able to repair that relationship with your mom. Some people won't be able to do that. Um, and you know, that, that is what it is. Some people just are never going to be able to have that with their mom, but, um, I do think it's important to find support somewhere. So you've been able to find some support through your mom and that's great. And if 
somebody listening can't find it that way and it's not going to repair, you know, you're not going to be able to repair a relationship that happened in the past. There are other people out there that hopefully you can find that will be supportive to you in your life. Yeah, because any, anybody can be a nurturer for you. It doesn't have to be the person that births you, right? Yeah. Moms give a certain type of nurturing, but it can be from an aunt. It can be from a friend's mother. It can be from a friend. I mean, I've had so many friends let me cry on their lap and vice versa, you know, and and um and rub my head and all those things. And so I think it's really important to cultivate our own family that doesn't have to be the traditional sense of family, right? Family is just about love ties that bond us together that are really, really strong. And so you could build that with anybody that you trust that makes you feel mm-hmm. safe. It does not have to be a blood relation. And so I think that's really important when you're coming through a healing journey is to find a people that make you feel safe. And oftentimes those people don't come from where you think they'll come from. They might not look like you. They might not have been born where you were born, but it, it can happen. And it, um, it can be very surprising what type of people can come into your life when you allow yourself to be open to it. How are you doing now? Um, How do you cope with stress and what's been helpful for you now? I cope with stress. Okay. So I cope, I'm getting my yoga teacher training certification. So I do lots of yoga, which is super helpful to cope with stress. I spend a lot of time in nature and I have been working through trauma with animals. So we had the dog Spice who my stepfather used to beat with her leather leash. Um, and so I, um, I love that dog. I, I, I loved animals um, as a younger kid. Like I had, I had toads, I had lizards, I had parrot, I had cockatiels. My mom had a cat when I was a young kid. And then we had this beautiful Siberian Husky from a puppy, I realized, so I, I was allergic to dogs and cats and all that stuff. But what happened as I started working through trauma, I realized that I wasn't actually allergic. I had developed a protective response from animals, trauma response where I would break out in hives and my eyes would water and I sneeze and I get congested um, around animals because I felt guilty for what happened to Spice. I felt like I should have protected her more, but I was a kid and a teenager and I was under attack too. So I couldn't have protected her. Right. But I, I felt guilty. And so as a result, I didn't allow myself to have that relationship with animals, even though I once loved them so much. So now that I started working through that and realizing that um, the fucking animal whisperer. So like anytime I go to a park or anywhere, like all the fucking dogs are just like literally it's like a fucking movie. They're like running, to, like, like running towards me, dragging their ma- their owners like towards me. And they're like just climbing up, trying to kiss my face. But I think it's because they can sense that I'm really open to it now. And like, I'm trying to allow myself to feel those animal love, loving feelings. And it's, it's really great. So that's been super therapeutic for me. Um, it's amazing how like, how great it feels to pet a dog. It, it feels fucking amazing. And I'm like really mad that like, I didn't work on healing this part of me sooner because I could have been like feeling so great. Like it just, there's nothing like it in the world. It just feels so great to have a dog, like smell you and pet the dog. And they feel so fucking fluffy and they're so sweet. Um, so I've been doing that a lot. So spending a lot of time in nature. Um, and, um, but just like really getting in tune with nature. I feel like as black people, um, and Latinos and indigenous people, whatever the fuck you want to call yourself, like we have a divine connection to the earth that's been taken away from us. Um, literally it's been stripped from us. And so I am trying to reconnect back with that. And so I'm outside in nature, like in the forest and stuff as much as I possibly can be and like hugging trees and shit and crying when I see deers because now I cry all the fucking time. I didn't cry for like two decades and now every fucking day I just cry about something. So yeah, allowing myself to feel feelings is the way that I heal, even if they feel Mm -hmm. stupid. Um, And they often do feel stupid because I'm used to not feeling anything. 
So that is um, what I've been doing. Lots of yoga, lots of time outside. Um, I still sometimes have panic attacks, but they're not as bad as they used to be. They're um, much less intense and less frequent, but when I do have them, mm-hmm. and I think, you know, just really focusing on setting boundaries has been great for me. I tend to overextend myself and that comes from not feeling like I'm worthy of love. So I want to do things to show you that, you know, you should love me. Um, and so I have been trying really hard to set boundaries and not overextend myself, um, which is hard because I'm very, very nurturing and generous by nature. Um, and so I'm, I'm having to work on those, setting those boundaries and putting myself first, which can be really hard for me sometimes. If there are people out there that think that you'd be a good fit for coaching or, you know, just want to get in touch with you, how can they do that? Yeah. So um, my website is the soul collective, soulcollective.org in S-O-L. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if you, I mean, everything that you need to find me in life is on the website. Like you can get my Instagram there. Um, you can get my Facebook there. You can get my YouTube channel there. Um, you and you can, have some cool products on there too, right? I do. So I have yeah. t-shirts, I have sweatshirts, I have a fanny pack. Um, I have some mugs. Um, I've written a book and the book is called Fuck Those Voices, a journal and love letter for women who live with trauma. So the book is a guided journal um, and it has broken into three parts. So it focuses on self-love, familial love and romantic love. And I actually share the trauma that I've had in each of those three areas. And I give the reader information into my life about how those traumas have shaped my worldview and then what I did to fix it. Um, or work on fixing it. And then each section has affirmations and journal prompts that allow the reader or the writer, whatever, to reflect on how their trauma has shaped their life and then what they're going to do to try to change it or what they need to do to change it. So Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people have found it very helpful. So that's also available for sale there. Um, And you can book a discovery call if you decide that you'd like to work with me in that capacity. Discovery call is free. Um, but everything is available on my website. Um, that's the best way. That's the best one-stop shop to find me. Although I'm not on social media for the next few months because um, it's toxic as fuck. And I found myself going into a cycle of comparing myself to other people, both like physically, like how I look versus how they look and um, like where they're at in their business. And, you know, social media will have you, have you feeling like if you're not making $10,000 in a week, like you're a loser. And I just couldn't do that to myself anymore. So I'm taking a break. All the business owners will say it's a dumb idea, but I don't give a fuck. Like I'm way more important than some social media presence. So I'm taking a break from that for now, but um, people can still reach out to you on the website and yep. Yep. They can contact me on the website. Um, Yeah. All my, everything in life is there. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It was great to talk to you. Yeah. um, It was, it was great. I really hope that anybody listening Um, I guess the main takeaway is just for you to realize that no matter what you've been through, no matter what things you may have done that you feel are bad or, um, or taboo, um, you know, it it doesn't mean that you're not worthy of love. And it doesn't mean that you can't heal yourself. Healing is an inside job. You can go to therapy, you can talk to people about it, but you have to be willing to change your mindset and believe that you deserve to have a happy life and you deserve to have love around you. And once you start believing those things, which can take a while because you have to fake the funk until you actually believe it. Um, sometimes I don't believe it and that's okay because I'm going to keep faking it and acting mm-hmm. like I believe it until it's super seamless. Um, but, you know, just, just know that you're worthy of all the things that you desire and you're worthy of the things that you think other people are worthy of that you're not, you deserve everything um, that's beautiful and loving and makes you feel warm inside. So, if you're listening to this and you needed a sign, this is the fucking sign. Thank you for that.
Thank you so much to Sonia Chardet for being on the morning meeting today. Next week on the show is Bob Philippone. Bob is the parent of a child who came out as transgender in college. We actually interviewed his child, Glory Day, last season on the show, and we had a huge response and people were really interested in learning more. Uh, so I asked Glory Day's dad to come on the show and talk about his experience as a parent of a transgender child. Um, it's a really interesting conversation. I was I felt very fortunate to have Bob come on the show. So join us next week. That's all for today. Good morning to all of you.